this week we'll talk about the work of data scientists and expectations from them. We have a special guest today, Misra. And Misra is a data scientist and content creator. And after working as a data scientist for many, many different companies, she decided to create uh, her own platform for teaching data scientists. So maybe you heard about this website. So you want to be a data scientist. And now we finally met the person behind this website. So yeah. And now I think you work as a developer advocate at Assembly AI, right? Yes, that's correct. So I still work on my platform and my YouTube channel, but I also <laughs> create content for Assembly AI. Okay. Yeah. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Before we go into our main topic, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? So I started in this whole thing when I did my bachelor's in computer science, even though I did not really know what I was getting myself into. And through the courses that I took during that time, I realized that I kind of like artificial intelligence and I felt like, okay, this thing is actually going to be the future of data science or generally the world. And back then it wasn't really top of mind in the world. And, you know, AI was just starting to mature and... I decided to do a master's also in that area. And I did my master's in big data engineering. And during that, I started taking projects, doing internships. I kind of ended up at IBM. And that's where I also started my first job as a data scientist. And through that, I did a lot of projects in many different companies because maybe the listeners would know that when you're a consultant, they sent you to different companies to do projects, basically. But yeah, after a while, I decided that the consultancy life is not really for me. I was not really getting a lot of excitement out of it. So then I decided to join a startup uh, working as a data scientist. And there it was actually really fun. We did a lot of good work. But after a while, I was like, okay, now I feel like I am ready to build my own thing. So I completely focused on my work as a content creator through blog posts, podcasts, and a YouTube channel. And I basically sell online courses through that platform too. And everything else is kind of educating people and educating the community going to that goal. And uh, yeah, so that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. And recently I joined Assembly AI as a content creator. You should go check it out. It's a great company. We're building a really nice product there too. It's a speech to text API. And on our YouTube channel for Assembly AI too, we make weekly content on generally deep learning, machine learning, and Python tutorials in general. So yeah, that's uh, where I am right now. How did you end up becoming a developer advocate? I guess because you understood you really like creating content, right? And that's why uh, I think developer advocate is the kind of role that you do this for a living, right? Yeah, you know how they say those who can't do teach. <laughs> so I guess I did not really want to do data science day to day. The projects were fun, the ones that I worked on, but I, during IBM, for example, we took on this project to give trainings to a very big company. I don't think I'm allowed to say the name, but it's like a multinational company that is all over the world. And for them, I started preparing a data science educational material and also give that training to them over a couple of days to like 300 people. And I realized that I actually kind of like teaching people through what I learned also at the projects in the projects that I was a part of at IBM and decided, you know, why don't I do this online? And I was getting a lot of people who wanted to become data scientists asking me like, how can I become a data scientist? What should I learn? And after a while, I actually got tired of answering everyone one by one. So I was like, I'm just going to write a blog post about this. And then it kind of like started that way. And then one blog post led to another 
And before you know it, I was making videos. So that's how it all happened. <laughs> and then I guess you also at some point decided to do this professionally by becoming a developer advocate, right? Exactly. So, I mean, for developer advocate part came very recently. I was just kind of making videos to promote my own platform, but Assembly AI found me online and they were like, we really like your style. Why don't you do this for us? And I was like, mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a common story. I heard this story quite a few times. Yeah, I think so. I guess because I interview people like you who are also quite into content creation and mm -hmm. the study they shared is pretty common. A company notices them and says, hey, why don't you do this uh, for us full time? Yeah, that's the great thing about kind of building something in public, right? You really put your skills out there and people see you, people realize what you're doing. And then that really opens a lot of doors. <laughs> okay, well, coming back to our main topic, data scientists at work. Uh, maybe there are some parallels to data developer advocates, but yeah, you were a data scientist quite recently. Right? Mm -hmm. So coming back to this topic. So how do you usually answer your question? Well, imagine you're a data scientist, not a developer. Mm -hmm. So how do you answer the question? What do you do at work to your friends and relatives? Well, that is one of the trickiest things they can ask me <laughs> because I have no idea how to explain it to someone who is not tech savvy at all, like my mom, for example. My very recent resolution was to just tell them, you know, these ads, you know, sometimes you search for something and then you start seeing ads about it everywhere. It's kind of like that. <laughs> That's what I kind of told them recently to make it more understandable. But generally, I try to say, you know, we collect a lot of data through your phone when you go on a website, they're tracking where you look at, where you click, how much you engage with their content. And all of this data and more data is being collected and someone needs to do something with it. And I know it sounds still very vague, but generally that's what I tell people. So I am the person who deals with the data and who is the professional that knows how to create value out of it. Yeah, my son recently asked me, well, not recently, it was a year ago, but I still remember this as if it was today. He asked me, what is data science? And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> what do I say now? <laughs> so I was like, it took me completely by surprise. I didn't know what to answer. So eventually he watches a lot of YouTube. So I say, oh, you see these recommendations on YouTube. Uh -huh. So this is kind of similar to, I'm not really doing recommendations, but the concept is clear, uh, it's similar, mm -hmm. right? So uh, depending on what you like, we show something. But now he thinks that I'm actually doing these recommendations for him. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, it's easier to explain it to people on an application because yeah, it's such a vague area and you can do so many different things with it that yeah, when you give one example, kind of confuses people, kind of makes it a bit more tangible, I guess. But yeah, it's really tricky to describe. You have a blog post about this, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's generally like, what is the work product of data science? Like, what do we produce? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what do we data scientists produce at work? Yeah, so I actually took a lot of different roles and a lot of different projects. And that's how I got to experience this a little bit myself, because with every project, we needed to deliver something different. And also through the podcast, I've met a lot of different data scientists, uh, machine learning engineers, data analysts. And I also heard from them what kind of things they produce. And it's basically... A wide variety of things so one thing you can produce for example is a trained model maybe that, that's like the simplest thing if you're a data scientist that works with machine learning or deep learning 
maybe all they want from you is a model that can produce accurate results. They will want you to create a complete pipeline where they will constantly add more data and then it will produce something. This could be anything, some results, maybe some information, the recommendations you mentioned. Another thing could be that maybe they just want you to do a presentation to them. And that's what I did most of the time. Even, you know, it said like, okay, I'm a data scientist. And then generally people think data scientists work with machine learning and you present your results and that's actually good enough. Or could be that, you know, you prepare a report and then you give it to someone like a manager who needs it. Like this one project I did for a bank, they had some like a jumble of data. They could not understand it. And my job was to understand the data and then make a report out of it of what is going on and why. So they knew something was going wrong, but they did not know how. And they had the data, but the data was so confusing. <laughs> they needed like a person to full time focus on this. Was that something at IBM that you did at IBM or like in general, like this is something maybe what consultants tend to do more often, like creating presentations and reports? Yeah. So we have the, many different ways how you can be a data scientist, right? And that's also something I, I say a lot on my website. When you want to become a data scientist, you should really think about what kind of work you want to do. If you end up becoming a consultant data scientist, then what you're going to do most of the time is a lot about like reporting and presentations or creating a dashboard, for example. So you're completely right about that. And that was something I did during my consultancy years also. <laughs> and I guess the other things you mentioned, like trained model, a pipeline, mm -hmm. a data pipeline is more something you create more often as a data scientist working in a product company, like at a startup. No, definitely. Yeah. I think being an in-house data scientist comes with a bit more of a responsibility. So you probably become a bit more of like the expert in the company. It depends on the size of the company, of course, especially if it's a small company, you really end up becoming the go-to person to build all of this. Some companies have separate engineering teams, so you would only have to create a model and then give it to them and they deal with it. And some companies don't. So you would have to create the whole pipeline. And so then requires a bit more of engineering and DevOps skills too, right? So yeah, these things really matter i think in terms of like knowing these things and this varieties and this whole range is important to choose the right position that's why i try to point this out as much as i can when i meet a new person who wants to become a data scientist so we have like you said it's important to think what kind of work you want to do to decide what kind of data scientist you want to be right so mm -hmm. one thing could be you work at a product company like in-house data scientist that's one thing mm -hmm. another thing is a consultant data science consultant is there something else like is there a third type of a data scientist yeah i think not in that sense but like, you can be a freelancer right always mm -hmm. you can okay. be a separate consultant for example but i think also in inside companies like if you're an in-house data scientist the team matters too you can be one data scientist in a team that is building a product that would come with different responsibilities. You can also be in-house data scientist, but you could be in the data science team. So you will be just one of the many data scientists that would also come with uh, different responsibilities. Also depends on how they assign you to different projects. Are you working solo on projects? Are you working with a bigger team? Like I said, that includes engineers or not. So all of these things, makes every data scientist in the world a little bit unique, actually. And that's why I think it's so important to ask questions to the company that you're applying to, to kind of fully understand what is waiting for you on the other side.
and with all, all different you know ways to work as a data scientist yeah actually this brings us a bit to the other thing i wanted to talk about because mm -hmm. there was one article from you that i really liked it was about unreasonable expectations from data scientists yeah. so i wanted to talk a little bit about that and there maybe you can give us a gist about this that article so what did you write about there sure so basically this is something i felt myself when i was first starting and that's why there are other people out there who feel the same way so i want to share my thoughts and feelings about that so basically there is this general air in the world of ai especially if you're a data scientist you're a practitioner that you really need to be on top of the latest developments and everything that is happening in the world of ai and to use a very Gen Z, <laughs> Gen Z word, I think it's toxic in a way that really makes people feel like they are not enough and they are not trying hard enough, even if they're working really hard and they know what they're doing. And basically in that article I was talking about, that does not have to be you. And you do not have to be reading the latest articles, knowing about the latest innovations or the models that are coming out. You don't have to understand how they work. And you're okay if you're just doing your work well enough. But how do you personally stay up to date in, uh, like, with all the developments in AI? Well, basically, I don't. <laughs> I don't really put extra effort into this. There are a bunch of people I follow on Twitter, for example, uh, but I don't follow them just to hear about the news. You know, I just generally like their attitude towards life, and they happen to be working in uh, Google Brain or DeepMind, for example. Then you kind of like hear about those things there. And well, currently I kind of have to because I'm creating content and the content is mostly about like the latest developments in AI. So that's part of my job. But before when I was a data scientist, I basically did not put that much effort into it because I know that what I'm supposed to do is my work and learning about GPT-3 and how it works does not affect my work one bit. It's cool, but I think it's more of a hobby than being necessary to be a data scientist. So that's why the answer to your question is, I don't really. <laughs> yeah, because especially when it comes to NLP, so you mentioned this GPT-3, there are so many things happening there. So first, like you start with transformers, then I don't know, like other things all the way to this GPT-3. And every time I open Twitter, there is something new about this. Right? And it feels like this, like I, mm -hmm. this former right? fear of missing out like if i don't jump on this nlp like something will happen i will become useless because i obsolete, cannot yeah obsolete exactly yeah yeah but it's, it's kind of funny because the people who worked work on models that big are i don't know in total it's probably like 50 people or something right mm -hmm. it's not even that many and they're like hundreds of thousands of data scientists in the world obviously not all of them are working on this but somehow some people are just more interested in it and that's kind of part of their life and it's their hobby and that's why they spend time on this and you know it's kind of okay for you to not have it as a hobby you can maybe you like playing basketball maybe you like going on walks and that's fine too like just because you're a data scientist you do not have to have a different lifestyle yeah, because I think these applications that go like things that go viral on Twitter, there most of them are like jaw dropping because you see it and it's like, wow, I can write some text or I can draw a picture and then this GPT-3 creates a website. Mm -hmm. Like I think there was something, I don't know if it's GPT-3 or not, but I think you just draw a sketch and this thing creates a valid React and HTML code from this and yeah. it looks nice. Yeah. And it's like, wow. 
can you do this? Like, is it real? Like, is it not fake? Yeah. And then there is actually a website where you can play with this and check that it is actually real. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think most of these things, they have this effect and you think, okay, like, hmm, I'm not using anything like this at work. I don't know how it works. And it seems like because th there is so much buzz on Twitter, right? It seems like everyone yeah. is talking about it. Everyone knows this. And it's just me who doesn't understand this, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think it's also, it's just social media, right? Mm -hmm. I think for, uh, you could say for young girls, they look at all the perfect looking influencers and they feel bad. And I guess for us, it's the influencers in the AI world or the technical world. And we look at them and we're like, oops, you know, these guys know so much. But I like what you said about how it creates like a jaw dropping reaction, because th that's kind of the point of the content. And now that I've been working in content creation for a while, I understand this a bit better because the whole point of creating content is to surprise you, shock you or get some sort of emotion out of you and that's why those people are working on that that's why i made a video about dolly you know it just came out everyone was shocked everyone was really impressed so i was like okay let me capitalize on this make a video explaining how it works and it's going to be useful of course but at the same time it's going to be educational and people will be like oh wow i need to learn about this someone made a video so that means everyone knows so let me also get in this bandwagon but it was actually fine like I did not know anything about how Dali to work before I made that video. And in one week I learned and then I made a video about it. But it doesn't mean that everyone in the world knows. But the, unfortunately, there is that illusion, like the community knows. So you have to be a part of it. <laughs> how does Dali work? Maybe you can tell us in a <laughs> sentence sure. for those who have fear of missing out. Because I do. I see these awesome pictures. Like I think the way it works, like as a black box, you give it some prompt, like a text, a piece of text, and yeah. it generates like nine images that looks creepily realistic. Yeah, exactly. It creates a high resolution image from uh, captions, basically. And the images are surprisingly realistic and it's not the only thing it can do it can generate images from captions it can also add items to images so let's say you have a photo of a living room an empty living room you can add couches you can say add couch and then it will add different types of couches oh. in different locations or if you give it an image that already exists like salvador dolly's painting with the melting clocks it can create a variations of it and how it does it is basically understanding what is essential in this painting or in this image, only keeping that and changing the unnecessary or irrelevant details where the clocks are located. So trivial details are changed, but the actual essence of the image is uh, preserved. So those are some of the things that it can do. Yeah, well, like I cannot imagine how much, like if I look at the papers about neural networks, like all these formulas there, they are just scary mm -hmm. and I cannot imagine what it looks like for things like DALI. Yeah. So DALI 2 itself is not that confusing because it is based on this model called diffusion models. And I'm actually working right now on making a video on how diffusion models work. That is scary. <laughs> it is taking me a lot of work to actually understand how they work. Yeah, but DALI 2 is basically a spin on diffusion models and diffusion models have been around for a while. So, you know, some of these big models are actually... They're kind of like combination of previously made models or technologies or kind of putting a spin on them, trying a different way. So sometimes it's even like easier than you would expect to. But I think I have now fear of missing out. After yeah. <laughs> oh, wrong effect. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, you said that uh, there is, uh, you know, it's just 
a work on top of other existing work that is <laughs> simple. And I, oh, I don't know this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So it's basically my job to know these things. And before <laughs> I started working as a content creator, I also did not know these things. And honestly, I also didn't care that much because most of these works, even though they're cool, they do not have immediate applications in real life. Like with Dolly 2, what they're saying is we want this to be a way for humans to understand how machines think and how machines create. That's all great. It's like a noble goal to have. But at the same time, no one is ever going to use it. Like, okay, in an artistic entertainment way, it is being used right now, but we do not have to panic just yet. <laughs> you know, I think there needs to be some new developments and we need to see how we can actually apply this in real world. And it's kind of going to like trickle down to us normal data scientists after a while. Mm -hmm. So I guess what you're saying is if you work as a data scientist at a company, there is mm -hmm. no immediate application of this thing. It all looks cool, but there is no way you can integrate into your product this thing. Right. Yeah, but the Dolly 2 uh, case specifically yeah. in companies because it's, you know generates natural language and that is kind of useful. I know there are some apps out there that use mm -hmm. it, but with the specific case of Dolly 2 and generally image generation, I think it's kind of experimental. They're just kind of having fun, I feel like. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about other things like all this, uh, we talked about transformers, GPT-3, mm -hmm. that does have applications in in real life right yeah no definitely but when you think about it so these models need so much data and computing power that a average startup is not going to be able to afford training them so they are being used by companies and assembly ai we are also doing deep learning research and using advanced deep learning techniques right for speech recognition but it requires a very seriously capable deep learning team, most of which are PhD graduates and a lot of money to train these models. So if you're working as a data scientist at a startup that does very minimal machine learning, you know, decision trees, XG boost and everything, chances are you are never going to use it. And there is not really much <laughs> use, I think, worrying about not knowing about them. And uh, I guess you kind of answered that it's okay not to be up to date always, but are there mm -hmm. cases when uh, you kind of should be up to date? Sure. I think it all depends on your goal. If you are not happy with where you are, what kind of work you do, and you see yourself somewhere else in the future, you should definitely go learn more of these skills. If you want to get into deep learning, if you don't want to, let's say in your current work, you're doing more like data analysis, you're providing reports and presentations, and that's not what you want to do. A great investment of your time to uh, go and learn how these models work and really understand them. But other than that, if you're happy with where you are and you don't really want to change the type of work that you do, then I don't think there is really much need. I guess you also need to focus on specific area, right? So it's not like whatever is hottest now on Twitter, mm -hmm. but more like, okay, what do I want to do now? They want to work more, I don't know, let's say with recommender systems. And then you go and check, I don't know, papers about recommender systems no. or textbooks, right? Definitely. Instead of, oh, there is this uh, GPT-3 or I don't know, GPT-4. Let's see how it works. Let's try to train it. Right? It's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like being a researcher at that point, I think. If you're going to try to build and optimize those models, you're going to need a lot of experience. And that means that you're going to have to make these things your life. If you want to work in NLP, 
you have to focus on NLP. If you want to specialize in something else like computer vision, you have to specialize in something else. And I think even in those areas, you still have niches that you can really specialize in. So I don't think it's possible to really be a deep learning generalist. Like with machine learning, it's a bit easier. Just you can be a generalist person. You know, you, you can learn to deal with different types of data and different industries. But I think with deep learning, it is quite specialized and you have to make it your life. Also, I think what uh, helps me personally to stay away from all this buzz in Twitter, but if I still want to be a bit up to date. Mm -hmm. So what helps me is industry conferences. So something like, mm -hmm. for example, in Berlin next week, there is a conference called uh, Buzzwords, Berlin Buzzwords. It's more like an engineering than data science conference, mm -hmm. but people talk about applications of data science. So they talk yeah. about their specific use cases and let's say how they scale this to their workloads, to their particular use cases, how they tweak the papers. For example, they take a paper, they couldn't implement this, how they ended up actually using this. Mm -hmm. So I think to me personally, it looks more valuable and useful and consumable. Because I cannot Definitely. understand papers. Like when I read a paper, it's to be like, uh, I don't know, too complex, right? So because they are also written in such a language that more academic, right? So you need to get yeah. used to this type of language. But these conferences, they are usually made by people from industry and they are aimed at people in the industry. So I think they are more useful. But of course, there yeah. are many conferences you can go and visit in one year. <laughs> Still, I think this is a good yeah. idea. You make a really good point. I think it makes a lot more sense to also have these personal relationships with people too. Because, you know, companies, of course, release papers. But at the same time, these are companies that are trying to make money. So obviously, they also don't give all the details of how they did something in mm -hmm. their paper. You know, like OpenAI is like, oh, here's a Dolly 2 paper. But then it's so vague. <laughs> you don't actually know what's going on. You're like, is this what they mean? Is that what they mean? You know? So yeah, I completely agree. I think it would make much more sense if there are maybe an industry specific conference that you can go to, uh, that you can understand how people do things. It builds relationships, but also it's probably much more useful to know what kind of a variation of a very common algorithm they are using in their niche. And if that niche also is where you are working, that will be extremely useful to see, hey, you know, these guys came up with something. Let me also apply that to my work. So that would be much more useful than to kind of doom scroll on Twitter and think about how you're missing out. <laughs> that doesn't sound very good, right? No. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that we have quite a few questions. So I thought we should uh, check them out. So the first question we have is, what is the most pressing issue for a data scientist today? In terms of like how we work, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Like maybe from management or for peers or from the society, from the community. Yeah, I think the one I had, at least I can answer from my perspective and remembering how the people I interviewed answered me is how much people don't understand what data science does. So, you know, I always say, if you want to become a data scientist, one of the key skills that you have to have is communication skills. doesn't mean that you have to be an extroverted person or anything. It's just that you need to be able to explain your work in clear terms to people that are not technical people. And when you can't do that, or the people are refusing to listen to you, then you have this problem of 
what you're doing is not valuable. It is taking too much time. And you're telling me that it's still 90% accurate. So it means it's not 100% accurate. So how can I use this in my work? And that makes a lot of areas in the world, like in a lot of industries, kind of resistant to starting to embrace data science. Some of them rightfully so, like medical field, right? Of course, you want really complete accuracy if you want to use a medical application, but some of them not so much. And there are still plenty of industries who are not yet using data science, partially because they don't understand it. And that was one of the main issues that I faced. And it was a big struggle trying to explain yourself and the work that you do in a way that people will understand. Because, you know, we were just saying in the beginning, it's even hard to explain it to your mom and you have all the time in the world to explain it. And still it's kind of hard. And when you deal with these people who have been doing the same thing in the same way for the last 30 years, it's kind of hard to change their minds. And I'm wondering if this uh, in these companies like medical field that fields uh, in companies where they don't yet use data science or just starting to use do they also have some unreasonable expectations from data scientists? Maybe not in terms of how up-to-date they are, but in terms of the work they do. Like they just come, they imagine a data scientist coming in the shining armor and just mm -hmm. defending all the data issues and creating a perfect model that works. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a lot about perspective too. I like giving this example of self-driving cars. You know, cars are being driven by humans, right? And there are a lot of traffic accidents, a lot of people die. But probably once we start having widely adapted self-driving cars, when the first person dies of a self-driving car, people are going to lose it. And they're going to be like, these self-driving cars are killing people. And then they should be off the streets. They're dangerous. Whereas probably, I don't know, maybe one fifth of amount of people will die actually because there will be less accidents. But the problem is there are going to be different kinds of accidents than the type of accidents that people make. So you could think, oh, this person was not going to die if this car was being driven by a person. But then, yeah, but for every person that that happened to, maybe there are like 50 other people that no accident happened to. So that is a mindset shift that I think still needs to happen in the world to fully embrace and not be scared of AI generally. And I guess in medical field, this is especially important. So it's a, a sensitive area of self-driving cars because this is about people's lives. Exactly. I think it's completely valid. The only thing I don't understand is when people also resist using AI-assisted systems, right? I think make, it makes a lot of sense to have AI systems helping doctors or medical practitioners in general to make decisions doesn't mean that it has to make a decision autonomously but you know maybe just like help me take the easiest cases off your hands or just kind of help me assist you in your decision making but i think even that is kind of being met with a lot of resistance so far yeah i think the reason is that people are afraid that ai will take over their jobs right yeah that also doesn't help <laughs> yeah generally i mean also you know when you talk to your friend who does not really know they they hear about this like new technology and then everyone is like oh isn't it scary like that's that's one of the first things that i hear from people oh, isn't it scary and i'm like no it's not <laughs> these things are stupid like you don't get it you know it can only do this one thing and one thing only and it's it's like not about to take over the world or anything but <laughs> it's kind of hard to know that of course when you're not in the field yeah, and uh, there was some other topic I wanted to talk about and mm -hmm. maybe as a segue to this topic. So this feeling of being, of having this fear of missing out, 
So I think it it creates a feeling that I'm constantly unqualified, right? So I'm mm-hmm. I am afraid that now the world moves on, but I don't understand this thing because I don't understand this thing. I will not be able to do my work well. If I don't do my work well, then I'll be out of my work and I will not be able to get another job. So I will have to, I don't know, clean the data for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So where is this feeling coming from? I think it's because we are constantly working towards a moving target. That's my main observation. You know, like we said, there are always new models coming out, new technologies coming out. Other people are doing amazing work and then you see all about it on social media or maybe even in your company in your other data science team that is in your company. And it is kind of hard to imagine that you are enough when you see all these other people. But yeah, I think it's just because you have a list in your head. You think that, okay, when I know all of these things, I will be a complete person, a complete data scientist. But then you keep adding these things to that list. So at the end, you never actually reach that point where you feel confident in your skills. And I think that's the main issue that data scientists deal with. Because, you know, the new things are coming out like nearly every day. At some point in that startup that I was working at, I was trying to not implement, but use this model or for which the paper was published 20 days before I started working on it. And I was like, okay, cutting edge, but at the same time, a little bit stressful, honestly, because no one knows how it works. There are not enough Stack Overflow questions about this. There are not enough Reddit posts about this. So yeah, it's kind of like gets a bit too much, I think, at some point. Did it work? I don't think it did. Yeah, I don't remember fully because it was like we were using a lot of different things. We just didn't end up using it at the end. But mm-hmm. I learned about it. So that's something. <laughs> okay. There is this uh, concept of the imposter syndrome. Like, is it related to mm-hmm. that? Like this list that we have in our heads and we keep adding to this? Like, because uh, I guess like I'm an imposter till I cover everything in that list. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, me again, adding <laughs> things to that list, right? Yeah, it's really like a terrifying feeling when you think about it, because all you can focus on is like, I got to this point by luck and I don't actually know enough and someone is going to figure it out (laughs) and they're going to point at me and laugh at me, right? I mean, I'm not sure if uh, people who are really established in their fields would feel that way, but definitely I think that's something that many beginner data scientists feel in their first couple of years. But I think that happens because there is this air in many companies, if it's not specifically said not to be the case, that you should really know already when you start a, start your job about everything. But that's really, really not the case. Like most of the time when companies hire a entry-level data scientist or a beginner-level data scientist, kind of like junior, your job is to learn new things. Your job is not to already know things. Your job is to have this baseline where you know the basics and you can pick up new concepts really quickly. So people feel like an imposter, but actually they are exactly where they should be at. They don't have to know anything. And, you know, there's so many different frameworks, languages, libraries that you can use that there is no way that you can know all these things. And your job when you just start a company doesn't even have to be junior, honestly. You can be a media or even senior that you just have a way of learning things quickly and that's your job and you start a, start some work and you just need to ask questions you know question other people's decisions ask them about how they did something and learn about these things and 
honestly, for me, that's what it means to be a data scientist and not knowing all of these things in advance. Mm -hmm. So let's say there is a new framework and you think this framework is useful. So you decide to pick this up and learn a little bit of this, right? Mm -hmm. So because we don't want to learn it perfectly, we know that this is uh, not going to be a great way of spending our time. Mm -hmm. So we want to learn a little bit. So how do we know when it's good enough, like that we know it well enough to stop learning? That's a good question. I guess what I would say is, uh, let's say you have like a job that you want to apply to, right? That's why, let's say that's why you learned this thing and because you saw that there are requirements listed, this is one of the frameworks that you should know. How I would go about this is basically find other companies where they are looking for this and interview with them and see you know, what kind of questions they ask me and if I feel like I know enough to answer these questions. Because every company has a bit of a different expectation uh, from people and different level of competency when it comes to languages and frameworks and technologies and stuff. So that would be a really hard question to answer, I think. But yeah, as I said, what I would do is to learn the basics and bring myself to a point where I feel like if they tell me, hey, can you learn how to do this in this framework that I could do it in like one day? Perhaps another thing, useful thing is to focus on a specific use case, specific application. And once you achieve this result, let's say, I don't know, you need to build a web form quickly and you found this Streamlit framework, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a form in your head. Once you have something similar, then it's probably good enough, right? You can move on. No, definitely. But if you cannot build the form you want in your head, Maybe you need to ask yourself, is it even possible? Maybe I shouldn't stop. Yeah. I should stop trying, right? And look at other ways of doing it. No, exactly. And then again, the question here is like, how do you know when to stop? And what is helpful, I think, is somehow give it a time frame. Yeah. So like yeah. I spent on this no more than, I don't know, two, three days. And then if it takes more, then maybe yeah, it's not worth. Uh, yeah, maybe it's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Spending that month. That's a, that, that's a good idea. Which type of data scientist do you like being and which type is the best? Oh, well, I feel like that's one question because <laughs> the one I like being, I feel like would be the best for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think from the ones I experienced, I like being an in-house data scientist the best because, well, let me go one by one. When you're a consultant data scientist, you are being sent out to a different company and that company is basically the client, right? And then you cannot really judge their decisions too much. So you have to do what they want. Same thing happens if you're a freelancer, for example. And they kind of have a client and you have to go with their rules. Of course, you can guide them and try to nudge them in the right direction. But at the end of the day, if they want something, they want something. But when you're an in-house data scientist, you really have the power to say like, no, guys, this is wrong. You shouldn't do it that way. And I really like that because it kind of gives me a feeling of completion. I do not have to be like, okay, I know that's not the right way, but let me do it that way. You know, you can really say, no, I am the expert here and you have to listen to me. So that's something I really enjoy. So that's why I would say it's my favorite. You can also, of course, be like a more in a more research environment, right? You can be a researcher in a company or an academy. That's also possible. You can, if you call yourself a data scientist at that point, of course, that's kind of a choice. Some people call them so like AI researcher, but that one I think is also really fun, but I just, I don't like that version because then your life is a lot about the research and not always about producing results. And I kind of like seeing quick results. So 
that's why in-house data scientist is my favorite and i think is the best one <laughs> i haven't worked as a consultant data scientist but from what i heard from other people who like doing this they like exposure to different projects yeah because they are not air quotes stuck with the same problem for, mm -hmm. for two years they get to work on many many different problems and then they have uh, maybe a broader not so deep mm -hmm. skill set but quite broad right and for some people this is what they like to have because every client is a little bit different they work on a little bit different problems or maybe completely different problems so they mm -hmm. get exposed to different things but again you probably have to ask yourself like what do you like more seeing results of your work or mm -hmm. you know just preparing a powerpoint presentation and handing it over and yeah. not knowing what yeah. happens after that right yeah that's definitely true you do get exposed to different projects but if someone out there wants to be a consultant and if that's their reason they want to work on different projects i would really urge them to ask the company how many kind of different projects their data scientists worked on this year because sometimes there are no projects and then you don't have a project and then it's boring. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this obviously doesn't happen in every company. Uh, and also like, you know, they might tell you, oh, we have many different industries, but if the country you're working in does not have that many different industries, then you are stuck with the same industries at the end of the day anyways. So those things are quite like nuanced, I think. It's really easy to say like, oh yeah, I work in many different companies and many different industries, but the reality might not be that way. So I think that's mm -hmm. something to look out for. Yeah, in case of IBM, or well, maybe let's not use IBM, but let's say there is a company in the Netherlands who works with Benelux companies, right? Belgium, mm -hmm. Netherlands, and yeah. uh, Luxembourg, right? So I guess you're kind of limited to whatever industries are there in this geographical region, because this is where the company works, right? No, of course, yeah. So then you are uh, definitely dependent on the region that you're working in. Netherlands, actually, we're quite, we were quite lucky to have Belgium and Luxembourg included. And Netherlands itself also has like a lot of different industries included in them. So that was quite lucky of me, but I, I've definitely heard people, for example, like in Turkey, I had some friends who were struggling to find projects and that is not the most fun place to be. Mm -hmm. Okay, and there's a related question. Do you think it's better to be a specialist as a data scientist or to be a person with a broad skill set? My opinion on this is that I like to be a generalist and I like to know a little bit about everything, <laughs> but mainly it's just kind of my personality because I like learning new things. And I guess I do not really have the patience to be a specialized person, <laughs> but I wouldn't say one of them is better than the other one. As I said, it really depends on the kind of work you want to do. If you're like, I want to be an NLP expert, well, there you have it. You have to really specialize in that area. But if you're like, you know what, I like this data science thing and I want to learn as much as I can in this area, then just, you know, go ahead and learn different things. Then you probably have to accept that that is going to limit the opportunities that you can take. Like you will not become a researcher at like Facebook or something. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, ups and downs. Mm -hmm. So it will broaden your opportunities, but at the same time limit. Right? Yeah, exactly. So basically... Like if there is like pyramid, let's say, maybe there is like top 2% of job opportunities where like the elite data scientists and researchers are working, that will probably not be accessible to a generalist. Mm -hmm. Okay, But at the same time, you have like this bottom yeah. where like all the top tops in the world. Yeah, exactly. Like one day you can work for a medical startup. The next day you can go work for like Amazon or something. So you can really jump around, hop around because then your skill would be necessarily about like the techniques that you're using 
and machine learning in general, and you can apply to different industries and different types of work. Mm -hmm. So being a generalist and it's not only something for consultant data scientists, it's also for mm -hmm. data scientists working in startups. Because I remember when I worked at a startup, I needed to do pretty much everything. So sometimes I would just go get some groceries, for example, and bring them to the office. <laughs> because in startup, there is no office management, right? So if you want yeah. to get some food, go and get this, right? There is no special person yeah. for that. Yeah, that, that's how I learned to stream it, for example. I mean, not, I didn't get groceries, but for example, we were building projects and we wanted to showcase the projects. We didn't have an engineer in the team. So they were like, oh, how can we do it? And then, you know, our manager was like, well, I heard about this thing Streamlit. And I'm like, okay, I'm on it. You know, and then you build like a web app. Or I did have to do quite a bit of DevOps when I was in that company too, because I kind of like it actually, because you kind of just end up learning out of need. So you're not like, oh, I have to improve my skill set. And then you sit down and study something, but it's more like, okay, guys, we need to do this. Who wants to take it on? And then you take it on and you learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. It also answers the question is when you know when it's good enough, right? When it works, then it doesn't break yeah. down on every second request, then it's good enough, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. For newer data scientists, from courses like yours or bootcamps, how would you suggest they break into the oversaturated market for entry-level data scientists? So I think it comes down to kind of like job hunting skills. The advice I give to everyone basically is to apply as much as they can, but in a smart way, because I think people get really overwhelmed with all requirements uh, that HR managers list. And most of the time they don't really know what they're talking about. And, you know, if you look at the list of skills that you need and you know, don't know like 20%, 30% of it, I would say just apply either way. And if they're a nice company, they'll probably get back to you and they'll give you a reason why they're rejecting you. And also another thing is if you have a goal of being in a company or generally in an industry, I would try to network I do not like that word networking, <laughs> but you know, you have this thing in front of you like LinkedIn and you can really use it to advance your career. And you'll be surprised how many people actually get back to you or somewhere that in a related field, in a related role, and just kind of like send them a message, send them a nice message uh, being like, Hey, I am interested in working in your company. I want to learn more about it. And many times people are just like happy to talk to you about their experiences there are, of course, less nice ways of doing this. Like I get messages sometimes they are a bit more like entitled, like, hey, be my mentor or something like that. I'm like, excuse me, have we met, <laughs> you know? So I think definitely like writing a short message, asking the people that you want to talk to, like, hey, do you have like 15 minutes or half an hour to spare to answer some questions? I'm really interested in your company and here are my reasons. I think that you would get a good amount of response. And I think that is like a great way to have an in with people that are in the company that you want to work for. Yeah, be my mentor is something I also receive quite often. And this is, yeah. first of all, it's so demanding in terms of time, right? So being yeah, a mentor definitely. is a time investment, right? So I need yeah. to know you to actually invest time yeah, in you. It's an intimate relationship. It's, yes, it's not it's... something that you just demand out of someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then like, uh, it's also not super specific, like what kind of help you need mm -hmm. or what kind of questions. And this is like, I, I guess a good way to start this conversation is like, this is my problem. I don't know how to solve it. Maybe you don't need a mentor. You just need to find an answer to this question and then exactly. move on till you have another question. Right? And yeah. then if you have a mentor who is always, always there for you, answering these questions, cool. But if you don't have a mentor, 
maybe you don't need one, right? So there's internet yeah. where you can find answers to almost everything. Yeah. People try to get help sometimes before they really understand what they need as exactly like exactly. you're saying. And when you get a vague approach like that, it is very likely that I will not even reply, mm -hmm. but I would suggest everyone who wants to get into a company or just generally a data science career to really think about what you want, what do you need right now? And then ask really direct and clear questions. If I see a question that I can answer with a quick voice message or a couple of sentences of text, I definitely do it because if it's like really nicely specified of like what kind of thing they need help with. But yeah, the vaguer you go, the less likely that people are going to respond to you. Okay. The next question is about your current employer, Assembly AI. Mm -hmm. So how would you suggest a junior level data scientist or ML engineer catch the eye of Assembly AI? Ah, interesting question. So it is very hard for me to reply to this because I am not in the engineering team and I do not know exactly what they're looking for. I'm in the marketing team right now. So I would probably don't answer this question because I don't want to misguide people. Mm -hmm. I really haven't even looked at the open positions and what they are requiring. So yeah, I don't want to speculate. Mm -hmm. But let's say you would replace assembly AI with the company X. Mm -hmm. So how would you answer that question if it's a company that you don't know, but maybe you have some ideas. Yeah. How would somebody get attention from a company they want to get in? Well, my go-to advice, and that's exactly what I do too, is to first understand what this company is doing in their industry and their technology. And you don't have to be an expert, but kind of understand what are they doing? What kind of field are they in? What are the main challenges in this field? And th this information is not hard to find. Like you can literally Google it. That's the first thing. And kind of have some questions lined up for them that will be interesting for them to answer. And, you know, it should kind of be interesting to you too, because you don't want to work somewhere where you're going to be bored. And generally, I would really advise people to have a couple of projects out there that they can present, ideally relevant to the job that they're applying to, but doesn't have to be. Just kind of showcase the skills that you recently learned. One really good way of doing this is to kind of build streamlit projects on top of your machine learning projects that you do. It doesn't have to be professional projects, you know, it could be personal projects that you do. And yeah, just kind of like have a way of proving to these people that you have been working on your skills and you know about their industry and you're curious about their industry. So just do some research, have some questions prepared and make sure that you have a way of showing what you know. I know it's not like really snappy advice, but unfortunately that's the reality. You know, it's not like wake up at 5 a.m. every morning and then write down what you want from your day. So it's not like that. Unfortunately, like you have to put in a consistent work into these things to catch people's eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, a question that is quite related. So you mentioned projects that could be relevant potentially to the employer you're interested in. So of course, yeah, you need to do research, some research mm -hmm. to find out what could be more interesting for this employer and then also prepare questions that you would ask. The question we have actually now asks about these projects, because the question is, I see that every new data scientist endlessly repeat the same project. I think the person means like Titanic or cats versus dogs, or I don't know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. famous data sets here, Iris, for example, I don't know. So how would you go about creating a good project for potential employers as a newbie? So I think you partly answered that, like do research in the company where you want to work mm -hmm. and then find a, a project. I guess it's not always possible, right? So what if this 
company works uh, like this is a car manufacturing company like you cannot <laughs> have a project about manufacturing a car exactly that's a good point obviously people are doing the same projects but i think with this project what you're trying to show is not how great of a model that you're building the model you built might suck and that's fine i think like if i was a hiring manager that's how i would think because what you're trying to show is that you understand how data behaves you understand what kind of problems that can be in the data. You know how to deal with these problems and you know how to build a model and you know what to do when something goes wrong in this model. So if it's overfitting, you are able to understand, oh, hey, it is overfitting. And then you can come up with some options. You don't even have to apply them, honestly. If you have a notebook where you do some analysis on the Titanic data set and then you're like oh here i tried this but then it overfit here are some things i think i can do to fix them and yeah if you have time you know you can go further because as you know like sometimes data science projects are like endless there's so many things you can try and so many things you can do and it can be like if i had more time i would do this and that so that's why i don't think the project itself really matters especially for beginner data scientists it's just showing that you can do critical thinking and you know the tools that are available and you know when to use them. I would still not like use Titanic or whatever <laughs> because I think they're kind of boring, but I would try to find data sets that are from real life. So actually collected in real life. One that I really like to use that I also use in my course is uh, New York City Open Data. It's from New York City Open Data. And it is like the taxi rides, the, the information that is collected on taxi rides. And it is extremely dirty. There are so many things that is wrong with that data. But I mean, it's, you know, it's like real life, obviously. So that happens. So I would really suggest that you find a source like that. By the way, New York City Open Data has a lot of different types of data. So like definitely go check it out. You have Reddit, for example, in Reddit data sets, subreddit, I think has a lot of different types of data sets that people are posting. Just try to find one that at least resembles real life data a little bit. Of course, real life data is not really made publicly available most of the time. And as far as I know, the ones on Kaggle are like quite well prepared and clean and everything. <laughs> so yeah, I think if, if you just get a piece of data that at least resembles real life and then you do your best on top of it, that is you know, enough of a project. You don't really have to build anything mind-blowing or interesting if you cannot come up with an idea. Yeah, and speaking of these subreddit data sets, I remember I needed to find a data set, but Googling wasn't helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that happens. And I asked on this subreddit, and actually there were people who suggested ways to find this data. Yeah. And yeah, there is also a website on uh, Stack Exchange Network. I don't remember, but this is like Stack Overflow, but for data sets. There is a, I think it's like open data or free data, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can also check it out and there uh, you can just ask a question about like, I'm looking for a data set. Yeah, I need help. Yeah. What's your stance on companies thinking only about uh, hiring PhDs or people with master's degrees, and they think only they can be data scientists? What would you say to them? I would say that they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, it really depends. So of course, that's kind of like a controversial statement. Companies don't always know what they need. So that's, I think, one of the things that I've learned being in the industry for a, a couple of years. 
they just think, hey, we need someone who understands how these things work. And, you know, it seems like they should probably have a master's degree, right? And they're like, look around. Yeah, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, probably. They don't really know what people learn in master's degrees. Honestly, I felt like I did not learn much in my master's degree. Maybe I did, but, you know, I kind of felt more or less the same. Like I graduated from bachelor's, especially with PhDs. Like if you want to become a researcher, if you really need to understand the algorithms that you're working with, obviously, yeah, you probably do need a, a PhD. But other than that, if you're going to be a consultant data scientist or something similar, you probably don't need it. Like, as I said, you go to a company to learn because data science is a really practical field, right? Most of the time, you don't need to build the tools that we're using. Like you have scikit-learn. When is anyone ever going to build a decision tree by themselves? Like that, that doesn't really happen. Of course, companies get to decide themselves. We can say whatever we want about this. It's not going to change anything. But yeah, I think it's probably not fair. That, that's how I think about it. It's, it's just not a fair comparison because, as I said, it's really practical. And if someone has done enough projects and is able to show what they've learned, just because they don't have a PhD or a master's degree should not be a reason to not hire them. I guess there are companies like Google Brain or OpenAI that do research. And the only way to show that you can do research is to actually do research. That's why they hire PhDs, because this is a proof that you can do research and you do not get bored because you've spent significant amount of time yeah. defending your PhD dissertation. But for the other cases, yeah, maybe not so much, right? No, yeah. I mean, again, yeah, you know, if a company wants to do experimental things, they probably want someone with a PhD or at least like maybe someone with a PhD to lead the team. So that's understandable, but I don't think it should be a hard rule. Okay, thank you. Well, how can people find you? Oh, people can find me on my YouTube channel, Musra Torp. It's like the hardest name, probably. You'll send us the links, right? We will just include this to the description and you can find the channel. Exactly. So you can find my YouTube channel or you can follow me on uh, Twitter. It's basically my name and my last name. That's my Twitter handle, nothing in between. And yeah, then we can keep in touch. You can ask questions to me there too. Yeah, thanks for being here, for answering our questions. And I guess that's it uh, for today. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, goodbye. Bye.